This is Medieval Death Trip for Saturday, November 26th, 2022, episode 97, Concerning Three Witches. So, as I was rummaging in the attic, fishing out Christmas decorations, I came across a tattered notebook with a message hastily scrawled on it. What I read made my hair stand on end. This is what I found. I don't know who will hear this. I'm writing this message alone in an upstairs spare bedroom. I can hear them, the infected, moving around downstairs. I've been trying to keep quiet. I don't know how long I can hold out up here. Soon, I'll have to venture out to make a supply run. I can only hope that I can get past them without becoming one of the infected myself. What I had uncovered amongst the boxes and cobwebs was the original script for the opening of this episode, which was intended to be our Halloween anniversary episode, which has again overshot its planned release. But that intro was not just a spooky echo of zombie movies to set the Halloween mood, it was also true. So this summer, uh, I moved and started a new job, uh, and I've been staying with my parents in that period, and they both tested positive for COVID-19 over the weekend of Halloween. So that rather disrupted my production plans a bit. Uh, and once Halloween had passed, I had job stuff that got in the way, and it's just taken a while to get back in front of the microphone. Oh, and to allay any concerns, uh, my parents recovered just fine, uh, and I've luckily remained COVID negative, uh, knock on wood. So here in America, we're all getting sucked into Thanksgiving this week, and while, frankly, Christmas is already omnipresent in our commercial spaces, proper Christmas season isn't quite yet upon us, so I hope you'll indulge me in clawing back a little bit of Halloween spirit before Advent hits us hard. So set aside your premature eggnog and grab a glass of apple cider and put yourself back in the spooky season for a little spell. Instead of Black Friday, think of black magic. And let's start this thing off right. Hello, and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the show where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. This October 31st, 2022, Medieval Death Trip is eight years old. As far as Halloween horrors go, I have to say I find that number a little terrifying. Younger listeners might not appreciate this yet, uh, but I suspect some others of you will. Uh, one eventually reaches an age. It's not old age. It can be late 20s, early 30s. Uh, but you start looking at projects you've been working on, jobs you've had, uh, graduate degrees you've completed, and realize you can meaningfully measure them in childhoods of children one might have had. Maybe that thought goes away if you actually have a real child. Those of you with children can let me know. Um, but I look at this anniversary and I see a not-so-little third grader running around, uh, really a spooky little ghost child, and a little tremor runs up and down my spine. And to add to the grim mathematical horror, we've had 96 proper episodes leading up to this anniversary, which means divided by eight years, I've managed to exactly average one episode a month, which is fine, I suppose. Uh, it's only ego-annihilatingly horrific when compared to my original and ongoing goal for the show, uh, which would have had us at double that number of episodes by now. Maybe that shortcoming isn't due to the vagaries of life 
and employment and moving and pandemics and getting stymied by difficult episodes or difficult moments in the current history, maybe this show has been hexed. Maybe John and Andy over at Saga Thing placed a stick inscribed with sinister runes under my bed. Or there was that time that Danielle Sobolski gave me that odd look. Was it the evil eye? And a neighbor did say they heard Sarah Ift Decker murmuring something in a strange language after recording an episode of Media Evil. Perhaps I've been bewitched. By the pricking of my thumbs, something wicked this way comes. Oh no, you secret black and midnight hags. What is it you do? A deed without a name. I conjure you. By that would you profess, however, come to know it, answer me, even till destruction sicken. Answer me to what I ask you. Speak, demand. We'll answer. What dost thou want? What canst thou give? Wouldst thou like the taste of butter? A pretty dress? Wouldst thou like to live deliciously? Witches spend their time plotting to kill children, stalking the wretched child like a hunter stalks a bird in the forest. Do they hunt you? Because something interesting happened to you, actually, at one point in your life. You had an encounter with the Blair Witch. Um, yes, that is um, a really kind of scary story. Double, double, toil and trouble, fire burn. Cauldron bubble. Um, to kind of make ends meet, my dad and I would go fishing down by Taffy's Creek. Right. And you know, it's um, in Burkittsville. I was laying down on the leaves, a pile of leaves, kind of watching my pool and looking up at the sky. Sure. And uh, all of a sudden, I felt like something was near me. Right. You know, kind of a eerie feeling. Real witches are quite bold. Although, of course, they wear wigs that itch and cause them scalp rash. Do you know what scalp rash is? No. Itching under the wig must drive them crazy. It, it was like a woman, only on her arm and on her hands and everything. It was like hair, like a real dark, almost black hair. Uh-huh. Like, like a horse. Like fur? Yeah, like a fur, like horse fur. Then her arms, she had like a shawl, right? Wool shawl over her. And she scared you? She threatened and, you? And um, she didn't say anything. What do witches do? They are malefic, negative and destructive. Their knowledge of the art of the occult gives them tremendous powers. They can change the course of events and people's lives, but only to do harm. You don't believe me. They look quite hideous behind their human face masks and can only be distinguished from ordinary women 
If you are sharp enough to spot the purple tinge to their eyes. We have found the witch! May we burn her? Burn her! Burn her! Who do you know she is a witch? She looks like one! Yeah, yeah, she looks like a witch! Bring her forward. And so, what the munchkins want to know is, are you a good witch or a bad witch? But I've already told you, I'm not a witch at all. Witches are old and ugly. She just kept staring, and then right. she opened up her shawl. And what was under there? And under it, there was hair on her body, like a So horse. she was hairy from head to toe? Yeah, Ex and her her legs, and her, you could see right. How about her face? female. With just kind of, like, strange looking. I'm not a witch, I'm not a witch. But you are dressed as one. They dressed me up like this. And this isn't my nose, it's a false one. Will? Well, we did do the nose. The nose? And the hat. But she is a witch. Their goal is to accumulate great personal wealth, but that can only be achieved by injury to others. They can cause suffering, sickness, and even the death of those who, for whatever reason, have offended them. Here's the blood of a bat. Put in that. Put in that. Round about quarter go. In the poison entrail throw. For a charm of powerful trouble. Like a broth. Boil and bubble. What makes you think she is a witch? Well, she turned me into a newt. A newt. I got better. Burn her What do you picture when you think of a witch? Perhaps you think of the standard Halloween iconography. The pointed hat, a black dress or cloak, a broomstick... Maybe you picture a student at an exclusive boarding school wearing a colorful house scarf. Maybe you picture an old crone, or maybe you picture a gothy teenager. Some of you might see Margaret Hamilton or Bette Midler, some Melissa Joan Hart or Feruza Balk. Some of you might see your grandmother, or an aunt, or indeed an uncle. Or you might even picture yourself. On that last point, uh, let me pause here to establish one thing, which is that I want to set aside from today's discussion Wicca and modern witches. Uh, for one thing, the origins of Wicca and its relation to practices in antiquity and the Middle Ages is already a sensitive point of debate that I don't particularly want to wade into. And also, despite the fact that we'll be hearing from ostensibly historical sources today, I think we can fairly safely treat at least two of the witches we'll meet today as figures of fable and folklore, pretty well divorced from any actual practices at the time. The third one is a little different and has more of a foot in a real experience, uh, though I think we can still rather safely say that experience has little to do with the traditions associated with modern Wicca. And there is a real sense in which modern Wiccans and witches would not have been identified as witches in the Middle Ages. Uh, at least, not witch as a translation of the Latin term malefica, which is the term that dominates the early modern witch hunts, those of the 16th and 17th centuries, where many of the tropes of the Halloween witch come from. Before the early modern period, there was more of a distinction made between malevolent malefica, uh, the word literally breaks down as evildoer, 
and uh, magi, or wise women and wise men, practitioners of divination and folk healing and love magic. A great 2001 article by Michael D. Bailey entitled From Sorcery to Witchcraft, Clerical Conceptions of Magic in the Later Middle Ages argues that by the time of the early modern witch trials, that distinction had collapsed, at least in the view of ecclesiastical authorities. Treatises by late medieval demonologists uh, culminating in the famous 15th century witch-hunting manual by Heinrich Kramer, the Malleus Maleficarum, the Hammer of Witches, argued that virtually all magical practices inherently involved the worship of demons and were therefore heretical and criminal witchcraft. The Inquisitors did not want to allow for gray areas of benevolent magic. But before that, perceptions and judgments of magic and divination were far less clear-cut and by no means universally negative. Now, the story of how that change of perception happens that Bailey lays out in his article is very interesting, but I think it will have to be saved for a future episode focusing a bit more on the lead-up to the actual witch trials of the 16th century. But just to highlight the contrast in the stock image of the early modern witch and the earlier ones we're going to be encountering in our text for today, let's hear a short excerpt from the Malleus Maleficarum discussing how witches become witches, at least according to the Inquisitors. This is from Part 2, Chapter 2, of the several methods by which devils through witches entice and allure the innocent to the increase of that horrid craft and company as translated by Montague Summers. The method by which they profess their sacrilege through an open pact of fidelity to devils varies according to the several practices to which different witches are addicted. And to understand this, it first must be noted that there are, as was shown in the first part of this treatise, three kinds of witches, namely, those who injure but cannot cure, those who cure, but through some strange pact with the devil, cannot injure, and those who both injure and cure. And among those who injure, one class in particular stands out, which can perform every sort of witchcraft and spell, comprehending all that all the others individually can do. Wherefore, if we describe the method of profession in their case, it will suffice also for all the other kinds. And this class is made up of those who, against every instinct of human or animal nature, are in the habit of eating and devouring the children of their own species. And this is the most powerful class of witches, who practice innumerable other harms also, for they raise hailstorms and hurtful tempests and lightnings, cause sterility in men and animals, offer to devils or otherwise kill the children whom they do not devour. But these are only the children who have not been reborn by baptism at the font for they cannot devour those who have been baptized, nor any without God's permission. They can also, before the eyes of their parents and when no one is in sight, throw into the water children walking by the waterside. They make horses go mad under their riders. They can transport themselves from place to place through the air, either in body or in imagination. They can affect judges and magistrates so that they cannot hurt them. They can cause themselves and others to keep silence under torture. They can bring about a great trembling in the hands and horror in the minds of those who would arrest them. They can show to others occult things and certain future events by the information of devils, though this may sometimes have a natural cause. See the question, 
whether devils can foretell the future in the second book of sentences. They can see absent things as if they were present. They can turn the minds of men to inordinate love or hatred. They can, at times, strike whom they will with lightning, and even kill some men and animals. They can make of no effect the generative desires, and even the power of copulation, cause abortion, kill infants in the mother's womb by a mere exterior touch. They can at times bewitch men and animals with a mere look without touching them and cause death. They dedicate their own children to devils, and, in short, as has been said, they can cause all the plagues which other witches can only cause in part, that is, when the justice of God permits such things to be. All these things this most powerful of all classes of witches can do, but they cannot undo them. But it is common to all of them to practice carnal copulation with devils. Therefore, if we show the method used by this chief class in their profession of their sacrilege, anyone may easily understand the method of the other classes. There were such witches lately, 30 years ago, in the district of Savoy, towards the state of Bern, as Niter tells in his Formicarius. And there are now some in the county of Lombardy, in the domains of the Duke of Austria, where the Inquisitor of Como, as we told in the former part, caused 41 witches to be burned in one year. And he was 55 years old, and still continues to labor in the Inquisition. Now, the method of profession is twofold. One is a solemn ceremony, like a solemn vow. The other is private, and can be made to the devil at any hour alone. The first method is when witches meet together in the conclave on a set day, and the devil appears to them in the assumed body of a man and urges them to keep faith with him, promising them worldly prosperity and length of life, and they recommend a novice to his acceptance. And the devil asks whether she will abjure the faith and forsake the holy Christian religion and the worship of the anomalous woman, for so they call the most blessed Virgin Mary, and never venerate the sacraments. And if he finds the novice or disciple willing, then the devil stretches out his hand, and so does the novice, and she swears with upraised hand to keep that covenant. And when this is done, the devil at once adds that this is not enough, and when the disciple asks what more must be done, the devil demands the following oath of homage to himself, that she give herself to him, body and soul, forever, and do her utmost to bring others of both sexes into his power. He adds, finally, that she is to make certain unguents from the bones and limbs of children, especially those who have been baptized, by all which means she will be able to fulfill all her wishes with his help. We inquisitors had credible experience of this method in the town of Brysock in the Diocese of Basel, receiving full information from a young girl witch who had been converted, whose aunt also had been burned in the Diocese of Strasbourg. And she added that she had become a witch by the method in which her aunt had first tried to seduce her. For one day, her aunt ordered her to go upstairs with her and, at her command, to go into a room where she found fifteen young men clothed in green garments after the manner of German knights. And her aunt said to her, Choose whom you wish from these young men, and he will take you for his wife. And when she said she did not wish for any of them, she was sorely beaten and at last consented and was initiated according to the aforesaid ceremony. She said also that she was often transported by night with her aunt over vast distances, even from Strasbourg to Cologne. 
This is she who occasioned our inquiry in the first part into the question whether witches are truly and bodily transported by devils from place to place, and this was on account of the words of the canon, which seem to imply that they are only so carried in imagination, whereas they are at times actually and bodily transported. For when she was asked whether it was only in imagination and fantastically that they so rode through an illusion of devils, she answered that they did so in both ways, according to the truth which we shall declare later of the manner in which they are transferred from place to place. She said also that the greatest injuries were inflicted by midwives, because they were under an obligation to kill or offer to devils as many children as possible, and that she had been severely beaten by her aunt because she had opened a secret pot and found the heads of a great many children. And much more, she told us, having first as was proper, taken an oath to speak the truth. <laughs> so that gives you an overview of what the late medieval slash early modern inquisitors thought they were protecting Christendom from, a satanic cult fixated on the stealing and killing of children. Good thing we don't still have these kinds of absurd conspiracy theories actually being believed by people these days, right? Anyway, that's the early modern endpoint. Let's see some of the earlier offshoots in the folkloric lines that got us there. Today's first medieval witch encounter is included in several Latin versions of the life of St. Samson, a mid-6th century bishop. Our earliest text of this Vita dates back to around the year 700, with a 9th century reworking following it, which itself served as the basis for a 12th century Vita written by Baldric of Dole. A shortened version of that text was included in the Book of Schlandaf, a manuscript compiled in Wales sometime between 1120 and 1140, and that's the version we'll be hearing today, as translated by W.J. Rees. Almost all the texts we have of the life of St. Samson come from continental sources. Not outrageously surprising, since despite being born in Cornwall, Samson was a bishop across the channel in Brittany. Our only version of the text in a British manuscript is the one found in the book of Schlandorf, and here it is. The witch encounter occurs fairly early in Samson's career. His parents, Anna and Amon, leave him at the age of five to be raised by St. Ilted, a local abbot. Samson, in his youth, performs several miracles, takes the priesthood, and survives an attempted poisoning by a jealous brother monk. It's shortly after this that he seeks out the life of a hermit. The story doesn't say so explicitly, but one imagines that Samson might not feel all that comfortable in Ilted's abbey after almost getting murdered over abbey politics. It is here, as Samson leaves the monastery, that our story picks up. There was, not far from this monastic establishment, a certain island, in which was a monastery built by one named Pirio. To that place St. Samson went speedily, God conducting him and the master favoring the proceeding, and there he led a glorious and angelic life, amiable in his manners, intent on good works, and constant in his devotions. After these things, at a certain time in winter, 
the father of St. Samson, being afflicted with severe illness, was admonished by his neighbors that, as was usual, he should receive the sacrament of the Holy Communion. But he strongly affirmed that he should not taste of death, that he should not receive the sacrament, that he should not recover his health before he saw his son Samson, and that on his account he should receive the health of his body and of his soul at the same time. His relatives, therefore, sent messengers to him, requesting that he would visit his father who was lying on the brink of death. But Samson, affected with grief, said, God is able without me to heal the sick. At length, being prevailed on by the entreaty of the abbot, he sent back the messengers and consented that he would come. Therefore, in the morning, having received the blessing of his abbot, he commenced his journey with a young man who was a deacon. And when they had passed through a great desert, they heard a dreadful voice near them. By this voice, the deacon being frightened, left his horse, and throwing off his cloak, betook himself to flight, when a hairy and horned witch, who had a three-pronged lance and was flying through the woods, prostrated him half dead. But St. Samson proceeded intrepidly, and seeing the witch escaping at a distance, called after her, saying, In the name of Jesus Christ, stop and speak to me. And he asked her, Who art thou? She answered, I am a witch. My parents have always been enemies to you, and no one of my kindred has dwelt in this wood except myself. I have eight sisters and a mother who are still living and dwell in the farther wood, and I was given to my husband in this desert, but because he is dead, I cannot depart from this wood. To whom St. Samson said, Canst thou restore to life the brother whom thou hast smitten and desist from evil? She answered, I cannot either cure him or become better, for from my infancy I have always led a wicked life. St. Samson said, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command thee that thou no longer injure mankind and that thou very quickly depart from this life. She then immediately gave a precipitous leap, fell down, and expired. St. Samson, returning to his brother, who was nearly dead, after the manner of Elisha, applied his mouth and limbs to those belonging to him, and so restored him to health. They then proceeded on their journey, and on the third day came to Ammon, who, when he saw them, said with great joy, Lo, the remedy for my body and soul, which the Lord was pleased to show me in a dream. For on that day he was, by the blessing of St. Samson, healed of his disease. And, by his earnest request, he, with his brother Umbrafel, was induced to take the monastic habit, and both the venerable Anna and her sister Afrella were consecrated by his blessing. Of his property, he gave part to the poor, part for the building of a monastery, and part for the use of his mother and brothers. All things being set in order by the favor of the Holy Spirit, he took with him his father and uncle and returned to his monastery by a road different from that by which he came. Also, in the same road, he found a serpent of wonderful size, which, by his word alone, he destroyed. So, thus we see how St. Samson overcomes various monstrous things in the wildernesses of the world, or at least of Cornwall. And monstrous is a fair description of our first witch, horned and hairy, and traversing the forest in superhuman leaps and bounds. 
The first thing we should consider here, though, is what she is called. The word Reese translates as witch in our selection is not actually the typical Latin word applied to witches, malefica. Instead, the creature described in the life of St. Samson is called a theomaca, or that's possibly theomaca, but I'm going to go with theomaca. The original Latin says that she is theomaca hirsuta et cornuta, or a theomaca hairy and horned. When Samson asks who she is, she replies simply, Theomaca sum, Theomaca I am. This word is a Greek borrowing from theomakos, an adjective meaning fighting against God. So, a theomaca is one who fights against God, or the gods in a Greco-Roman pagan context. The nature of this character has been discussed by Francesco Marzella in an essay from the 2020 book, Civilizations of the Supernatural, Witchcraft, Ritual, and Religious Experience in Late Antique, Medieval, and Renaissance Traditions. Marzella points out that in none of the versions of this story does the author do anything to prepare the reader for encountering this unusual figure. We're not warned that the woods are haunted. When she appears, we're not given even a sentence from the narrator to explain where she comes from. She leaps out of the forest as an enigma that's treated like something we're expected to recognize and fill in all the details ourselves. But nothing in the surviving corpus of texts suggests we would be able to do that, even if we were a medieval audience. Theomaca is not a well-established term. A form of it does appear in the New Testament, but not in the context of witchcraft or monsters. The Venerable Bede, whom we heard from last episode, wrote about the word in his commentary on the Acts of the Apostles and remarks that the word is known from other, quote, historical writings, uh, presumably things like that very first Vita of St. Samson from the 8th century. Now, the term theomaca does conjure certain particular associations. In classical mythology, it links to the giants born from the castrated Uranos who fought against the Olympian gods. And in the early medieval Christian attempt to synthesize classical literature with the Bible, a further link is drawn between these giants as well as the Titans and the giants mentioned in the book of Genesis. For example, uh, Bernard Merdrignac, a scholar cited by Marzella, has pointed out a passage in Jerome's commentaries on the Psalms in which he links the Hebrew Raphaim, giants, to the Theomachoi. Fans of Old English literature might note a further echo of that language from Beowulf, in which Grindel is said to be part of the same monstrous lineage of Cain that also produced the giants who fought with God for a long time. Swilcha gigantas, tha with God wonen longethracha. So, like many a monstrous medieval figure, like the Green Man and other woodland spirits, she seems to embody the pre-Christian past of the place. The fact that she is one of nine sisters has links in Celtic lore, where we find other sets of nine sisters, uh, sometimes identified as witches. Of course, you also have nine muses in Greco-Roman mythology. Uh, in Norse mythology, Valkyries often appear in multiples of nine, and the god Heimdallr is said to have nine mothers. Uh, nine is one of these mythically significant numbers, like three and seven and twelve, that show up across cultures. Artheomaca also has inhuman characteristics, the hair and horns, that connect her to nature and figures like satyrs and wild men, though they also have Christian associations. 
Though it's more of a late medieval development, you have a few legends of women living as hermits in the desert, growing hair all over their bodies as a kind of miraculous clothing to preserve their modesty. The hairy depictions of Mary Magdalene are probably the most famous instances of this. Also, medieval art frequently depicted Moses as having horns, a consequence of how Jerome, uh, here he is again, translated in his Vulgate Bible a Hebrew description of Moses' head being horned, an idiom meaning having rays of light emanating from his head, uh, we would say haloed, uh, but rather than interpreting the idiom, Jerome simply translated it into its literal Latin equivalent, cornuta. That's the same word used to describe our Theomaca in the Book of Schlandaf's text. Except there's an interesting little issue there. Earlier versions of the Vita don't say cornuta, they say canuta, which means gray-haired. So cornuta is apparently a scribal error, but one we do see in other later texts. So it's a mistake that clearly created an image that still resonated with audiences and made sense to them in some way, uh, kind of like horned Moses and hairy Mary Magdalene did as well. Anyway, what all this amounts to is that the Theomaca is not a witch in the early modern sense of a human who has made a pact with the devil. She is instead an actual monster, like Grindel, uh, descended from her own nearly extinct race. In Baldrick of Dole's version of the story, he goes even further and specifies that what Samson encountered is, quote, an unclean spirit in the shape of a woman, but turned shaggy and bristly, end quote. Our British version presents her still as a mortal creature that can and does die, and who had a husband who died, which is one of those incongruous details that suggests a richer lore that we just don't have access to. Uh, Marzella notes that scholars haven't really come up with a convincing explanation for why the death of her husband prevents the Theomaca from leaving the forest. And again, the narrator certainly doesn't show any interest in clarifying it for us. But back to the witch as a non-human monster. Uh, not only is that the conception of witches that you get in, say, Roald Dahl's The Witches, but it fits into a classical lineage of monstrous women. In the 7th century, Isidore of Seville addresses these kinds of witches alongside other pagan deities and spirits. One finds them sandwiched between ghosts and incubi under the Latin term lamia. Isidore writes, uh, as translated in the Barney Lewis Beach and Berghoff edition of his etymologies, quote, Ghosts, larvae, they say, are demons made from people who were deserving of evil. It is said that their nature is to frighten small children and chatter in shadowy corners. Witches, lamia, whom stories report would snatch children and tear them apart, are particularly named for tearing apart, laniare. Hairy ones, pilosus, are called panatai in Greek, and incubuses, incubus in Latin, or inui from copulating, inire, indiscriminately with animals. End quote. Isidore also touches on another term for witches, striga, in his discussion of metamorphoses. Quote, there are accounts of certain monstrous metamorphoses and changes of humans into beasts, as in the case of that most notorious sorceress Circe, who is said to have transformed the companions of Ulysses into beasts, and the case of the Arcadians, who, when their lot was drawn, would swim across a certain pond and would there be converted into wolves. 
That the companions of Diomede were transformed into birds is not a lie from storytelling, but people assert this with historical confirmation. Some people claim that witches, Striga, were transformed from humans. End quote. Isidore is writing at a point where classical mythology is transforming into European folklore. So, in the earlier classical tradition, the Strix, or plural Striga, was a bird of ill omen associated with danger to children. Pliny notes that they were thought to lactate a foul milk onto the lips of infants, and Ovid goes further to say that they attacked, disemboweling them and drinking their blood. In the Satyricon of Petronius, they are said to steal the body of a dead child. Roman writers also began to associate them with women who magically transformed themselves into monstrous birds, which later seems to shift over to just flying women. You can start to see some of our modern witch motifs emerging there. A similar folkloric evolution applies to Lamia, who begins as a specific individual figure, uh, one of Zeus's lovers who is cursed to a horrific transformation in the same vein as the story of Medusa. While specific details of the myth vary from version to version, Lamia is strongly associated with the killing of infants and children. Oh, and she was also given the gift of prophecy, and in some versions has removable eyes linked to her ability to see into the beyond. Someone coming. Sounds like a man. A young man. Who has the eye? I do. Give it to me. Now. I want to be the first to see him. What do you see, sister? What do you see? Yes. A young man, not plump, but well made. Have no fear. I come in peace. As with Striga, over time, Lamia becomes a more generalized term for a species of monstrous woman or sorceress involved with the death of children. So, in this strand of early medieval witch, what we have is a kind of female counterpart to the giant of Mont Saint-Michel, an inhuman people-eater linked to magic, though their own magic seems more like an innate power or ability rather than a skill learned and practiced. The magic practitioner is the second strand in the witch tradition feeding the early modern witch hunts. Isidore touches on this with his mention of Circe, the most notorious sorceress, Maga Famiosissima, the feminine form of Magus, which is a fairly broad concept. It certainly means magician, but what does that mean? It can be a diviner, an astrologer, a potion maker, a wise man or wise woman. Isidore puts a more distinctly negative spin on it in another mention he makes of Circe in explaining the etymology of the word circus. He writes, quote, Moreover, she was a sorceress, maga, and a witch, venifica, and a priestess of demons, sacerdos daimonum. In her conduct, we may recognize both the working of the magical arts and the cult of idolatry. End quote. The word venifica or venifica shares a root with English venom. It's generally a sorceress or witch, but specifically, one who works with poisons and drugs. Our next witch is not notably venomous. Instead, her main magical activities involve divination. But on that topic, and before we totally leave the life of Samson, I wanted to bring in an example of the earlier attitudes towards magi and diviners. Just a few pages before we encounter the monstrous Theomaca, we're told that Samson's parents, Anna and Amon, before he was born, 
went to consult a local diviner for essentially a kind of fertility consultation. Here's what the text says. These things being done, they went with presents to a certain learned man who lived at a considerable distance northwards and had prophesied what was true to many persons, to visit whom they proceeded and at whose residence they arrived the third day. Receiving them kindly and with hospitality, he mentioned to them the cause of their journey and said, I know the occasion of your coming. Make a silver rod equal in height to thy wife and bestow alms on poor Christians and thou shalt obtain offspring and the object of thy wishes. Which Amon hearing said, I will give three silver rods equal in height to her. On the following night, the blessed Anna saw in a dream an angel who said unto her, The Lord hath deigned to comfort thy sorrow, and thy tears shall be turned into joy, for thou shalt bear a son, and call him Samson, one worthy of the episcopal office, and he shall be seven times whiter than that silver which thy husband gave for thee to God. All the things which she heard from the angel she truly related to her husband. The learned man, rising in the morning, spoke to Anna, saying, The Lord revealed to me this night respecting thee and thy offspring, that he will be such as Britain never has produced, nor ever will produce. And as it is said, The Lord is wonderful among his saints. By the supplication of holy men, the woman conceived and bore a son. And the name of Samson was given him by St. Ilted, who lifted him up at the sacred font and baptized him. So here we have a diviner who is doing God's work with no negative judgment towards him shown by the narrator. Now, the lines are a bit blurred here between what might be folk magic and what might be merely holy advice. Uh, God is invoked, not spirits. But the offering of the silver rods does push us a bit closer towards magical divination and not just praying for God to send a message in a dream. Interestingly, a different text, the first life of Samson, describes Abbot Iltud as, quote, a magicus from birth and a most acute teller of the future, end quote. That excerpt comes from Marzella's essay, and I don't have the full text of the first life of Samson to check, uh, but it certainly sounds to me like Iltud fulfills the role of the diviner in that version of the story. Uh, this one adds another little twist to the two threads of magic users, in that Iltud is undoubtedly a human being, but he has possessed his magical aptitude from birth. Again, suggesting it is an innate power rather than a learned one. This fits right in with the beliefs of, say, modern spirit mediums and such, uh, the notion of being born with some innate psychic sensitivity rather than learning to perform magical rites. Of course, that fits with biblical portrayals of the gift of prophecy as well. Marzella also notes that in the first life when Samson is presented to Iltud, the abbot is concerned that Samson, who has been surrounded by the miraculous from his birth, might be a devotee of, quote, the art of Python, end quote, an allusion to the Pythia, the oracle of Apollo at Delphi, and by extension, again, like with Lamia, any kind of pagan future-predicting or supernatural truth-telling. Iltud states that Samson needs to be taught, quote, at school in the learning of Christ, because it is not fitting to practice worldly magic together with heavenly wisdom, end quote which we might note falls short of outright condemning worldly magic. 
It just sets it below heavenly wisdom and indicates that it's not appropriate for a monk or a priest to practice, and not unlike sex or the hunt or other worldly diversions from the path of true holiness. Such practical magic has not yet been converted into devil worship in the clerical worldview. But perhaps we can see that conversion underway in today's second witch. Our previous Cornish Theomaca doesn't really have a name, but our second witch does. Well, not a personal name, but an epithet by which she has since been known. She is the notorious Witch of Berkeley. Berkeley is a market town in Gloucestershire, a rather different setting from the deserted Cornish wilderness inhabited by our Theomaca, and it lies only about 20 miles from Malmesbury, where the chronicler of this tale resided, William of Malmesbury. That proximity adds a little extra credence to William's claim to have received the story from a person who had witnessed it themselves. This little story is found in his Gesta Regum Angelorum and comes right after William's account of Pope Gregory VI's fight against some Roman thieves in the mid-11th century, an anecdote which ends with a divinely sent whirlwind blowing up the doors of a church. Uh, that story is on my list for possible future use, so we may hear the full thing later on. But that miracle sets up this digression into another supernatural ruckus at a church. Here's William of Malmesbury's account of the Witch of Berkeley, as translated by J.A. Giles. At the same time, something similar occurred in England, not by divine miracle but by infernal craft, which, when I shall have related, the credit of the narrative will not be shaken, though the minds of the hearers should be incredulous. For I heard it from a man of such character, who swore he had seen it, that I should blush to disbelieve. There resided at Berkeley a woman addicted to witchcraft, as it afterwards appeared, and skilled in ancient augury. She was excessively gluttonous, perfectly lascivious, setting no bounds to her debauchery, as she was not old, though fast declining in life. On a certain day, as she was regaling, a jackdaw, which was a very great favorite, chattered a little more loudly than usual. On hearing which, the woman's knife fell from her hand, her countenance grew pale, and deeply groaning, This day, said she, my plow has completed its last furrow, Today I shall hear of and suffer some dreadful calamity. While yet speaking, the messenger of her misfortunes arrived, and, being asked why he approached with so distressed an air, I bring news, said he, from that village, naming the place, of the death of your son and of the whole family by a sudden accident. At this intelligence, the woman, sorely afflicted, immediately took to her bed, and perceiving the disorder rapidly approaching the vitals, she summoned her surviving children, a monk and a nun, by hasty letters. And, when they arrived, with faltering voice addressed them thus. Formerly, my children, I constantly administered to my wretched circumstances by demoniacal arts. I have been the sink of every vice, the teacher of every allurement. Yet, while practicing these crimes, I was accustomed to soothe my hapless soul with the hope of your piety. Despairing of myself, I rested my expectations on you. 
I advanced you as my defenders against evil spirits, my safeguards against my strongest foes. Now, since I have approached the end of my life and shall have those eager to punish who lured me to sin, I entreat you by your mother's breasts, if you have any regard, any affection, at least to endeavor to alleviate my torments. And, although you cannot revoke the sentence already passed upon my soul, yet you may, perhaps, rescue my body by these means. Sew up my corpse in the skin of a stag. Lay it on its back in a stone coffin. Fasten down the lid with lead and iron. On this lay a stone, bound round with three iron chains of enormous weight. Let there be psalms sung for fifty nights, and masses said for an equal number of days, to allay the ferocious attacks of my adversaries. If I lie thus secure for three nights, on the fourth day bury your mother in the ground, although I fear lest the earth, which has been so often burdened with my crimes, should refuse to receive and cherish me in her bosom. They did their utmost to comply with her injunctions, but, alas, vain were pious tears, vows, or entreaties. So great was the woman's guilt, so great the devil's violence. For on the first two nights, while the choir of priests was singing psalms around the body, the devils, one by one, with utmost ease bursting open the door of the church, though closed with an immense bolt, broke asunder the two outer chains. The middle one, being more laboriously wrought, remained entire. On the third night, about cockcrow, the whole monastery seemed to be overthrown from its very foundation by the clamor of the approaching enemy. One devil, more terrible in appearance than the rest, and of loftier stature, broke the gates to shivers by the violence of his attack. The priests grew motionless with fear, their hair stood on end, and they became speechless. He proceeded, as it appeared, with haughty step towards the coffin, and calling on the woman by name, commanded her to rise, she replying that she could not on account of the chains. You shall be loosed, said he, and to your cost. And directly he broke the chain, which had mocked the ferocity of the others, with as little exertion as though it had been made of flax. He also beat down the cover of the coffin with his foot, and taking her by the hand before them all, he dragged her out of the church. At the doors appeared a black horse, proudly neighing, with iron hooks projecting over his whole back, on which the wretched creature was placed, and immediately, with the whole party, vanished from the eyes of the beholders. Her pitiable cries, however, for assistance, were heard for nearly the space of four miles. No person will deem this incredible who has read St. Gregory's Dialogues, who tells, in his fourth book, of a wicked man that had been buried in a church and was cast out of doors again by devils. Among the French also, what I am about to relate is frequently mentioned. Charles Martel, a man of renowned valor who obliged the Saracens, when they had invaded France, to retire to Spain, was, at his death, buried in the church of Saint-Denis. But, as he had seized much of the property of almost all the monasteries in France for the purpose of paying his soldiers, he was visibly taken away from his tomb by evil spirits, and has nowhere been seen to this day. At length, this was revealed to the Bishop of Orléans, and by him publicly made known. So, that's the 
totally believable, don't question it, eyewitness story of the dreadful fate of the Witch of Berkeley. The William of Malmesbury doesn't actually call her a witch, technically, grammatically. What he writes is, Mulier in Berkeleia mansitabat maleficiis. So that's, a woman resided in Berkeley, comma, maleficiis. So that word there, while very close to malefica, is a dative plural noun. So it doesn't mean a witch. It means evil doings or witchcraft with a plural quality. And the use of the dative case here indicates usage or involvement with by the subject of the sentence. Giles translated that as addicted to witchcraft, which is a bit strong. I'd go with engaged in acts of witchcraft, but maybe since it is a dative, uh, it might imply given to or inclined towards or something coming into possession. I can maybe see where Giles gets addicted. Uh, I don't know. And it also might be some funky ablative. Uh, My Latin skills here are not sharp enough to fully pull this into focus. Uh, All I can say and all I meant to say is that William does not himself label her the Witch of Berkeley. She's really the woman of Berkeley who had a certain involvement with witchcraft. And what is that witchcraft? William specifically mentions augury, which could be general foretelling of the future, or, as Stephen Gordon argues in his recent book, Supernatural Encounters, Demons, and the Restless Dead in Medieval England, circa 1050 to 1450, the classically inspired William might have used that term with intentional reference to its ancient Roman sense, specifically relating to predictions made by observing the flight of birds, an idea reinforced by the prominent role of the jackdaw in delivering some bad prophetic news to her. So, we have some divination. We're told she used demoniacal arts to sate all of these lusts and appetites in a very Faustian-sounding way, but we're not told that she was harming her neighbor's fertility or cursing their livestock or calling storms down on their farms or doing anything actually malicious. She may be doing things that are impious and sinful, uh, but we don't see her doing any harm to others. And indeed, the way William phrases it, a woman addicted to witchcraft as it afterwards appeared, no one in her community, perhaps not even her children, knew that she practiced witchcraft until she makes this deathbed confession. And that's another point. She turns to her children for aid against the demonic powers. Francesco Marzella points out that when it comes to saving her body from the demons, she does not resort to any magical practices or protective spells, but instead seeks prayers and masses, suggesting the limited capacity for magic to actually constrain demons, whose true adversary is faith. That said, there is still a distinct echo of folk magic operating alongside the protection of Christian prayers and her request that her body be sewn into the hide of a stag. We find a similar practice in at least one other English revenant tale from the Miracles of St. Edmund by Herman the Archdeacon, where the corpse of a possessed man is sewn into a calfskin. There seems to have been some association with securing the corpse that way as a deterrent to the body walking again after death. There also seems to be something a little muddled in the premise of the story of the Witch of Berkeley, uh, or more likely, William's attempt to render the story through Orthodox Catholic doctrine has distorted it. 
the issue is particularly with what the witch hopes her godly children will be able to do for her. In William's telling, she concedes that her soul is damned and mere prayers cannot save her from that, but her kids can keep her body from being tortured by the devils. To which one might reply, so what? Uh, Surely it's the soul part that really matters. But then, in the story, her body replies in speech to the devil's command. So is her soul still in her body? Are we dealing with some deep Thomas Aquinas notions of the difference between the anima and the rational soul? Maybe. Or maybe we have a fairly simple folktale of a whole person being dragged off to hell, being needlessly complicated to make sure it adheres to doctrines about damnation and salvation and the distinction between body and soul. You know, some of the same kinds of concerns we've seen in our episodes involving medieval revenants. Maybe that's it. Anyway, my main point here is that what William gives us is not the tale of a malevolent witch bringing curses down upon her neighbors and threatening the community. She has no coven. She seems to be a soul operator. Uh, nor is she a monstrous creature of the wilderness or the other world. William even specifies that she's not an old crone. He says she is not old, though she has reached the end of her life. Other than being a woman, and presumably a widow, she doesn't really even occupy the socially marginalized position of so many other victims of the later witch hunts. By all evidence, she appears to be a fairly well-to-do townswoman, and probably fairly well regarded while her witchcraft remained a secret. Uh, She does get a pretty elaborate service in the church. She isn't treated like a pariah. William's tale of witchcraft is of an individual succumbing to temptation and finding themselves damned. It's not a warning about a dangerous secret cult that threatens the community as the later witch panics asserted. Certainly, William's tale works as a kind of simple, Faustian cautionary tale and a Hell House-style showcase of what infernal torments might be like, Gordon proposes that the tale also serves a more metaphorical function as a political commentary on the breakdown of the normal order of things that's happening in England in the lead-up to the Norman Conquest, Uh, but I think for our purposes, we can just leave it as a little supernatural prodigium to wonder at. So, There are two examples of different paradigms of witches that we find in earlier medieval texts. You have one who is a supernatural creature dwelling at the margins of the settled world, and while she isn't described as eating people, she is associated with a classicized pagan lineage of child-eating ogres. And then you have a human townswoman who has covertly trafficked with evil spirits to learn magical arts that she uses to gain special knowledge and fulfill her own desires. Now, even in the earlier Middle Ages, you can certainly also find people using magic to harm their neighbors, or more accurately, you find explanations of injury or damage that blame malicious magic as the cause. Uh, You can find allegations of magic or supernatural powers being used to cause infertility or cause crop failures or livestock disease. Uh, And that's a paranoia that certainly carries on into and is affirmed by the early modern witch trials. Take, for example, this little detail about strange practices in Ireland from the Polychronicon of Ranulf Higdon, written around 1340, uh, as translated into English in 1387 by John Trevisa. Quote, 
In this land and in Wales, old wives and women were wont to beeth yet, as men sayen, oft for to shape themselves in likeness of hares, for to milk their neighbor's kine and steal their milk. And oft greyhounds run in after them, and pursue them, and ween that they be hares. Also, some by nigromancy make fat swine that beeth red of color, and none other, and selleth them in markets and in fairs. But anon, as these swine passeth any water, they turneth again into their own kind, whether it be straw, hay, grass, or other turns. But these swine may not be kept by no manner craft, for to jure in likeness of swine over three days. End quote. Uh, and to clarify one word there, Trevisa does write nigromancy, not necromancy. So black magic, not death magic. Uh, however, Ranulf's Latin text merely has quidam etiam magicus artibus, so also by certain magical arts. So black magic is a bit of editorializing by Trevisa. But even if Ranulf doesn't ever use the word malefica, this is more obviously a description of nefarious magic used to steal and deceive, which sets up later witch accusations. Though I'd just add in there that both the taking of animal forms to steal milk and the illusory creation of things that seem valuable but transform back into base materials, these overlap a lot with tales of fairy magic and make me wonder if this description of strange practices in Celtic lands beyond England isn't a garbled transmission of folklore that's attributing to humans things more properly belonging to the denizens of the other world. Of course, if Ranulf has done that, uh, that's part and parcel of how the early modern witch takes shape. It's a process of conflation. Classical, as well as, we should note, anti-Semitic, blood libel motifs of ritualistic child murder and cannibalism, those get conflated with these somewhat ordinary practices of folk magic and medicine to create an enemy threat for which evidence could be found in just about any community and which posed such a horrific danger that few would dare oppose those who crusaded to wipe it out. Oh, and there may have been some small profit in almost literally demonizing the church's chief competitors in providing healing and, indeed, providing divination services. And that's not just economic profit, it also involves social capital. In his article, Michael D. Bailey argues that those late medieval inquisitors were initially obsessed with learned practitioners of magic, uh, these clerical necromancers, uh, more directly Faust-like characters, who could gain status at royal courts as counselors and prognosticators, and in building their case against this quite formalized and ritualistic variety of magic passed down through books and texts, the Inquisitors ended up roping in village-wise folk and healers and midwives, almost as a kind of collateral damage that would go on over the next couple of centuries to become the primary targets and victims of the witch hunts. Our third witch leaps into our episode from an unexpected angle and a couple of centuries beyond our normal purview. But she's interesting because she gives us a glimpse of what the witch becomes in the Age of Reason in the mid-1700s. She's also interesting because she brings with her tropes from the monstrous witches, from the lustful witch of Berkeley, and from the unneighborly old women of Ireland and Wales. Uh, and in a sense, it is from those latter that she descends. Because, 
I came across this final witch in a digression on an excerpt from John Trevisa's translation of the Polychronicon in the 1807 book Specimens of English Prose Writers, Volume 1, by George Burnett. In the rhetorical tradition of William of Malmesbury, Burnett uses the passage about Irish witches as an opportunity to share a local anecdote from Shropshire about a young man's tussle with a witch in the late 1750s, ostensibly as some editorial commentary on how historians might respond to the superstitions recorded as facts in medieval chronicles, but also probably because he just wants to share this story himself. Here's what Burnett writes. On the subject of witches, I can present the reader with a story which places in a very striking light the possible illusion of the imagination under the influence of superstitious opinion. It may be proper to the premise that a witch, in her quality of nightmare, is styled in our popular superstition a hag, and that, consequently, a person troubled with the nightmare is said to be hag-ridden. About 50 years ago, there lived at a village in Somersetshire an old woman who was generally reputed a witch. Her body was dry and bent with age. She supported her feeble steps with crutches. Her voice was hollow, of mysterious, though hypocritical, solemnity, and from her eye proceeded a glaring and a piercing light which fixed the beholder in silent dread. Around the blazing hearth many a tale was told, and every tale believed, of goods stolen and cattle slain by more than human means. How she prophesied of ill to come and dire mishap, and that whatever was foretold in her dark forebodings was sure to come to pass. How often on the back of a lusty cat or broomstick vile she traversed with lightning speed the fields of air to work her witcheries in foreign lands. No one had doubt she had doings with the devil. A young man of the same village, at the age of one or two and twenty, and in the full vigor of health, began to receive, all of a sudden, the visits of the nightmare, every night as regularly as he went to bed. The sittings were so weighty and so long continued that his health was soon materially affected. In the course of three or four months, from a strong and ruddy youth, he became feeble, pale, and emaciated and finally exhibited the external symptoms of a person in a deep decline. Neither he, however, nor his neighbors, to whom he communicated his case, had any doubts respecting the real cause of his sufferings. In spite of the fears of superstition, he was a man of great resolution. He was resolved to lie in wait for the hag, awake. He resolved and re-resolved, but, unfortunately, was always oppressed by sleep before the critical hour. At length, he succeeded. He continued broad awake when, at the dead of night, he distinctly heard on the stairs the sound of footsteps, softly and cautiously ascending. He was all alive. He put his hands from under the bedclothes in readiness to grasp his prey. She reached the foot of the bed, ascended, and proceeded gently and gradually along either leg, advanced beyond the knee she was preparing to fall with her leaden weight upon his breast, 
In an instant, he leapt towards her, seized her with both his hands by the hair, and held her with convulsive strength. At the same moment, he vociferated to his mother, who slept in an adjoining room, Mother, I have caught the hag. Bring me a light. The mother, in certain faith, flew downstairs for a candle. Meanwhile, the contest continued with furious violence between the son and hag, who dragged him out of bed, and the struggle was then continued on the floor with unabated rage. The candle was now kindled, but on the very first glimmer of its rays on the staircase, the hag, with a supernatural force, tore herself from his grasp and vanished like lightning from his eager eyes. He was found by his mother, standing on the floor of the chamber, almost breathless with the efforts he had used, and with both his hands full of hair. On hearing the story, I eagerly inquired for the locks of hair. He replied, without the slightest surprise or embarrassment, I, I was much to blame for not keeping the hair, for that would have identified her person beyond dispute. But in the hurry of my feelings, I let it drop on the floor, and she took especial care I should never see it more. But I so overhauled her on this occasion that she returned no more to torment me. It is curious, said he, that while I had her in my grasp and was struggling with her, though I felt convinced who she must be, yet her breath and the whole of her person appeared to me like those of a blooming young woman. The person to whom this very singular incident happened is still alive. I have heard the substance of the story more than once from his own mouth, and can therefore vouch for the truth of the effect, whatever we may think of the cause. So, there you have The Nightmare of Somersetshire, as recounted with distinct incredulity by George Burnett. And here we see yet another kind of conflation of supernatural phenomena, that of the succubus and night hag with a human witch. Uh, you can hear a more detailed discussion of such supernatural night visitations in our episode 67 concerning a maiden seduced by an incubus or a Dunwich horror, in which you will also hear a little bit of the very same definitions from Isidore that I quoted earlier in this episode. An interesting feature of Burnett's story is the recognition of the night hag idea and the association with an old crone, while still having the nocturnal visitor take the form of a beautiful young woman. I think that rather supports Burnett's own take on the story, which is that the young man's experience, which Burnett frames as an, quote, illusion of imagination, uh, and which we would probably call a classic example of sleep paralysis, uh, this experience is interpreted by the young man through the lens of existing local superstitions, so that his understanding of who the young woman really was is determined by the pre-existing suspicions in the town of the old woman being a witch. Certainly, it is a story that if it had happened 150 years earlier, might well have ended with one or more people sentenced to hanging. I'll also just point out an odd detail, which is of the visitor creeping up the stairs to get to the young man's bedroom. I typically picture these kinds of sleep paralysis demons simply appearing at the foot of the bed, or maybe floating into the room. There's a weird kind of mundane physicality to this witch who has to physically climb up the staircase to get to her prey, uh, that takes a bit of the supernatural awe away from the scene. 
Anyway, that does bring us to our mystery word for this episode. That word is baggaged. Spelled like baggage with a D at the end. Though apparently you can also find a form spelled B-Y-G-A-G-E-D. It feels like it should be a term for being really tired or really drunk, like tuckered or potted. Boy, I am so baggaged tonight. And in a way, it does refer to being in an altered mental state. It means bewitched or mad. The etymology of this sense is not entirely certain. It's attested in a text from 1668 called An Exmoor Scolding in the Propriety and Decency of Exmoor Language Between Two Sisters Wilmot Mormon and Thomason Mormon as they were spinning. So in that text, it appears as a dialect word, uh, and it's not otherwise widely found. One distinct possibility is that it is connected to the use of baggage as a term for a loose woman who might be a camp follower of an army traveling with its baggage. Just another ignoble entry in the ages-old tradition of dehumanizing women. And it touches another misogynistic practice of characterizing desire felt for a woman as a kind of sinister spell cast by that woman. Uh, It's bewitching. We can see it used as a slur in Romeo and Juliet when Lord Capulet rages at his daughter when she rejects the marriage he's arranged for her. He says... Hang thee, young baggage, disobedient wretch. I tell thee what, get thee to a church a Thursday, or never after look me in the face. At least one 19th century lexicographer I read theorized that baggage also gives us bag as a slang term for a woman, as in an old bag, and that such usage may also, through corruption, give us our word hag. Now, the first part of that claim has some plausibility to it, a baggage yielding old bag, though the online etymology dictionary says that the modern slang use of bag for woman traces back to 1924, though there are certainly antecedent versions. Uh, Igor, would you give me a hand with the bags? Certainly. You take the blonde and I'll take the one in the tithing. <laughs> the second part of that claim, that hag comes from bag, does not seem to be supported by more recent etymological study, no matter how nice it would be to find a link between baggaged as bewitchment and being hag-ridden. But hag itself has quite an interesting etymology that kind of tracks the evolution of the image of the witch. Hag probably is a Middle English shortening of Old English hagtessa, meaning witch, sorceress, enchantress. It has Germanic cognates in Dutch hex and German hexa. The Old English word is also connected with haga, meaning an enclosure, especially of woodland, which gives us both the modern hedge and the haw in hawthorn. Now, here I'm just going to let the online etymology dictionary tell the rest of the story, since they've done a great job doing it, Uh, that would only get mangled in my paraphrase. So here's what they say. Quote, Haga is also the haw in Hawthorn, which is an important tree in Northern European pagan religion. There may be several layers of folk etymology here. Confusion or blending with heathenish is suggested by Middle English haitis or hagtis, hag, witch, fury, etc., 
and Hypnessa, goddess, used of Minerva and Diana. If the Hagtessa was once a powerful supernatural woman, in Norse it is an alternative word for Norn, any of the three weird sisters, the equivalent of the fates, it might originally have carried the Hawthorne sense. Later, when the pagan magic was reduced to local scatterings, it might have had the sense of hedge rider, or she who straddles the hedge, because the hedge was the boundary between the civilized world of the village and the wild world beyond. The Hagtessa would have a foot in each reality. Even later, when it meant the local healer and root collector, living in the open and moving from village to village, it may have had the mildly pejorative Middle English sense of hedge, hedge priest, etc., suggesting an itinerant sleeping under bushes. The same word could have contained all three senses before being reduced to its modern one. End quote. So, the etymology of hag does take us back to our Theomaca, this woodland connection to the old religion. And it also suggests that maybe hag is one of those words that could potentially be reclaimed from its pejorative sense. Uh, and I suppose in certain specialized slang senses, it already has been. But that brings us to the end of this episode. You can get bibliographic information for all the articles and books I referenced on the post for this episode at our website, MedievalDeathTrip.com, and you can send me email there to Patrick at MedievalDeathTrip.com. You can also follow the show on Twitter at MDTPodcast, uh, assuming Twitter doesn't become a horror story of its own. Uh, we'll see. And against that day, I have also started an Instagram account, just in case a great migration occurs. Uh, so you can find us there as Medieval Death Trip, all one word. Yes, I know, that's two different social media handles, but MDT Podcast was actually already taken on Instagram. Uh, more fool me for not locking all those identities down eight years ago. You can also support us on Patreon. Search for MDT Podcast there. Uh, patrons get access to bonus content, like an appendix to this episode, serving up another scoop of the Malleus Maleficarum that I'm going to put out soon. And I'd like to thank our new and returning patrons since last episode. Thank you, Sherry, Damien, Shelty, and Blythe. Your support is the benevolent magic that keeps this show going. And before I sign off, those of you who are ready to dive into the Christmas spirit can check out a Spotify playlist of medieval-ish holiday music that I've been gradually adding to each year. You can find that by searching Spotify for MDT Christmas, uh, that's the name of the playlist, or you can find direct links on our website and in a tweet I'll make and probably an Instagram post too. As I've cautioned people every year, uh, there are a few carols on that list that are maybe overrepresented. Uh, so if you're not a fan of What Child Is This, uh, The Coventry Carol, and Masters in This Hall, uh, you might be making liberal use of the skip button. Uh, I've also curated that list to try to space things out and actually have a flow to it. Uh, so if you do just put it on shuffle like a barbarian, uh, you're greatly increasing your odds of getting back-to-back -back variations on the same carol. But you do you. I do plan to be back soon. I really want us to get to episode 99 before the end of the year so that we can have a grand kickoff to 2023 with a 100th episode special. 
So that means once my turkey is digested, I'll have to be right back to work. Until next time, remember that a weighted blanket is just today's way to experience the joys of being hag-ridden. And thanks for listening.